This week on Trek, Mary Kill, Moriarty, Barkley, Heisenberg, next. A miracle turns a fictional character into real live flesh and blood. As far as I can tell, he's real. According to the laws of physics, this is impossible. But this new life form possesses a criminal mind. I'm afraid I had no choice but to take control of your vessel. And his ruthless power puts the entire ship in jeopardy. Unless we move to a safe distance, this vessel will be destroyed. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Trek, Mary, kill. Hi, I'm Brian. I'm Lori. I'm Brian. Welcome to Trek, Mary, Kill, a Star Trek podcast that's all about asserting personal taste as objective truth. This week, we're talking about the second Star Trek The Next Generation episode to feature the Sherlock Holmes character of Professor Moriarty, Ship in a Bottle. Joining me to discuss are Lori and Brian from TrekMovie.com. Hi, Lori and Brian. How are you doing? Hello. Pretty good. Doing really well. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for Thank being you here. so much. Uh, love your shows on the trekmovie.com podcast network. Uh, Lori co-hosts the All Access podcast where they talk about the uh, CBS or sorry, the Paramount Plus era Star Trek shows and Brian co-hosts the Shuttle Pod and they talk about all Star Trek things and sometimes there's some overlap there and uh-huh. I like I enjoy both shows so check them out. Lori is a producer, editor and writer and look for her Brooklyn 99 Confidential Case Files book coming out soon. It's a companion yeah. piece to the Andy Samberg sitcom. Brian is an Emmy and Peabody Award winning TV producer, and both of you are massive Star Trek fans, so knowledgeable, and I, again, thank you so much for being here. If you could quickly, how did you come to Star Trek? Do you remember the first time you saw it? My mom used to watch it, and it just caught my eye, and then I just became obsessed, and I do remember her saying, like, that makes sense, because I watched it when I was in the hospital after I had you, and I said, well, that's not possible, because it premiered six months later. So hmm. and then she would say, oh, that's when I was having kidney failure. So oh. Oh, <laughs> thanks, lovely. mom. I know. But I got totally, totally obsessed and was like combing TV guide, looking for episodes and writing terrible fan fiction and being humiliated generally. But um, but look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> what, no, no Sherlock Holmes characters in that fan fiction. No, this, <laughs> you know, I was an original series gal for many years. There was no other hope of Star Trek when I was a kid. Like, That's right. That, it was dead. That was it. It was over. But then it wasn't. And now we have so much of it. <laughs> so much. Yep. Uh, Brian, any any uh, story? Any kidney um, failure or health problems no, no. for your family? <laughs> like that you into this? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, my mother tells me when I was about two, when we were living, I spent a brief time living up in Massachusetts when I was very little. Um, my dad would go to work and then he would go he was taking some classes after after work so my mother and i were home alone together quite a bit when i was very little and at six o'clock every day was the original series and she tells me that she and i watched so i was predisposed to this stuff before i could even talk basically um she told me we would watch it every night i did not get into it on my own until like early to mid 1979 when I walked into the living room and my dad was watching the enterprise incident. Dun, 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 dun. Yep, that, yep. <laughs> that cue, that cue shows up like six times in that episode. That's right. Uh, um, and I asked him what the show was about and he filled me in and that was a good episode for a little kid. Cause there's a lot going on and it's, you know, Kirk in disguise, disappearing ships, all sorts of stuff. So 
that was kind of it. And then TMP came out months later and I, my dad took me to see that and that was kind of it for me. I was hardcore hooked after that. It's, it's a great, it's a great movie. I, I still, anytime anyone brings it up, I'm like, you have to watch the remastered director's edition. Yep. Yes. <laughs> you haven't yes. seen the best version of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, one thing, one thing we like to do, uh, is for each episode, which is going to be ridiculous because we're not all going to have stories like this, is I like to find connections. Do we remember a specific memory tied to when we saw, watched the episode or any connection to Star Trek in general, physical, whatever? Were you an extra? That kind of thing. But in here, you both, or sorry, Laurie, you spoke to Terry Metalis uh, about Star Trek Picard season three. So this is our kind of tenuous connection uh, and Moriarty is going to pop up. Kristen and I have already done Elementary Dear Data. And Moriarty appears. But now we're sort of getting the, the third part of the trilogy, essentially, with Moriarty being here. So uh, I wanted you both to be on. But now that there's for this particular episode, it just kind of worked out like, Laura, you actually you touched the creator. You spoke to <laughs> Terry Gonzalez uh, and you have this. You know, you have at least we have at least a connection to what's going on here, maybe. And I know go go into trekmovie.com, listen to the interview. She and Anthony Pascal list, uh, interviewed Terry Metalis. And I'm sure there's nothing more you can tell us than what he said. But what do you think is going on here? Why I mean, is he cr- popping up in season three? I think we may even have popped like taken that part out of the podcast because he did this big build up like I'm going to tell you a big secret this was before the trailer came out of yeah. uh, one of the characters who's going to be on it and so the weird part is Tony already knew and I guess Terry had forgotten that he told Tony and I hadn't watched those episodes in forever I'm so glad I did for this but I was like who cares like I'm not <laughs> wasn't a big Moriarty person more so now I would say um, so there was like this silence after he said it and it was so anticlimactic that we were like we should just take that out because <laughs> it doesn't he's not getting the response he like he wanted us to bleep out who it was but get a big response and we just didn't have it and I always felt bad about that but I'm like what can I do so <laughs> but we do here's what we know we know he's in one episode mm-hmm. and and I found an old Q&A with Michael Shabon about season one of Star Trek Picard, where someone said, if you could bring back one character, who would it be? And that's who he said. Interesting. Ah, that's oh. interesting. Very so, interesting. And then I would say, having just watched this, the current episode of Star Trek Prodigy, which was on this week, um, Ghost in the Machine, um, okay. it's the same. It's a holodeck within a holodeck. It's command codes. It's all of that stuff brought up again. So definitely there's some resonance to this episode that maybe i hadn't recognized the first time oh i like that yeah something we can maybe get into our discussion is you know did this episode have any inspiration like did it inspire the matrix at all or that you know what i mean like it i can't remember on in 1993 any sort of or prior to or around that time where we were dealing with simulations or do we live in a simulation that kind of thing and the I actual think, phrase "glitch in the matrix," which Barkley says, he does that's say right. that. Yep. That's yeah, that's right. Uh, I guess I to close the thought on Terry Metalis and Star Trek Picard season three, which is what I brought up in our Elementary Dear Data episode, was you know Jordy's key line of how Moriarty even gains consciousness, uh, an opponent capable of defeating or outthinking Data, and we've got lore in Star Trek Picard season three, so it seems like a pretty logical line of. 
okay, data used to be the one who'd take care of lore for us. We don't have data anymore. What's the next best thing? It seems like that's where uh-huh. they're going, but I don't know. Do either of you think that's what it is or we're dealing with something else? That's a good a guess as any. Uh, I hadn't yeah. thought of that until just now because I was wondering how they were going to go about doing that too. Right, and if he's going to be angry when he you know, recognizes he's been duped. Or for will who knows he? how long. I mean, the shot in the trailer is he's pointing a gun. I mean, I will allow that they could have just shot that for the trailer uh, yes. as, a, as a further misdirection. It'd be funny, though, if that was the actual shot and Jordy immediately points to Lore and goes, he did it. It's his one. <laughs> Kill him. He's the one. That's right. That's right. That, that should be the whole series. Just them That's pointing right. At each other. <laughs> okay. So Ship in a Bottle, the episode we're actually going to discuss right now, is it premiered in syndication January 25th, 1993. So we're recording this in December, but it's going to come out just a week or two before the 30th anniversary of this episode's oh premiere. So uh, how about that, guys? The time just uh, marches on, doesn't it? That is nuts. <laughs> 30 years. Written by Rene Echeverria, who I can only imagine was like probably, what, 26 when he wrote this? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, uh, that whole group, him and Moore, and that whole gang roll in yep. late mid to late 20s. Oh, asterisks on that comment, because I'm going to follow up on that, believe it. <laughs> Directed by Alexander Singer. Uh, this is episode 12 of season six. And um, I just realized it's the second holodeck mishap episode in like a five episode stretch. The previous one was Fistful of Datas. All right. If you are listening to us for some reason without having seen the episode, first, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) But also, please note that this synopsis is going to have some spoilers and this has a twist in it. So definitely skip ahead 10 seconds or so, 15 seconds. All right. Here we go. Moriarty returns. Sherlock Holmes' arch nemesis recreated as a worthy adversary for Lieutenant Commander Data in Season 2's Elementary Dear Data has a new scheme, taking over the Enterprise to force the crew into solving the problem of getting a hologram to enter the real world. How does he do it? By basically creating the Matrix. Picard, Data, and Lieutenant Barkley become trapped in a simulation of the Enterprise inside the holodeck, but don't discover this until it's too late and Moriarty has gained control of the real Enterprise. Not only does he want them to figure out how to make him enter the real world, Moriarty also wants to bring with him the love of his life, the Countess Regina Bartholomew, played by TV's Stephanie Beecham. But holographic creations cannot exist outside of the holodeck. And so Picard, Data, and Barkley trick Moriarty into thinking he's left the holodeck, reprogramming his simulation slash the Matrix, so that they believe they've actually been beamed off the holodeck. After regaining control of the ship, Barkley stores Moriarty and the Countess in a simulation with enough power and RAM to give them a lifetime of memories. That's it. That's the synopsis. Anyway, it's a story within a story. It's kind of clever. Um, wh- what do we what do we think about that doohickey? What what that seems like a weird chain of custody. <laughs> so Barkley's holding onto this memory module right. that he's putting it in this uh, battery. Basically, it's gonna have enough memory to run a lifetime. Countess Regina and Moriarty, as my wife pointed out, they have no ID, no money, no food, <laughs> no food, no change of clothes, nope. <laughs> and they're just gonna be traveling the stars on a shuttlecraft. And the idea is, are we all living in a simulation? That's Picard's final question. It's a neat episode. Um, I, I mean, just a quick general review. Laurie, you said you had like no connection or, or interest in it, I would say, having seen it 
now again? Is it did it did your needle move at all? Yeah, this? no, it definitely did. I mean, the thing you have to keep in mind with this episode is it aired right after Chain of Command. Yeah, right. And after. so Chain of Command was the most intense I think Next Generation ever got. Like those torture scenes and all that was yep. pretty big stuff. And then we go into this very mild episode where nobody raises their voice, really. And so, <laughs> and so, well, except for Frakes. Frakes really bellows a little bit. And his hair is a little bit <laughs> yep. messed up or something. Yep. But so it just wasn't that exciting. And I don't remember Moriarty popping for me that much. But when I watch it now, and I watched Elementary Dear Data again as well, um, he's just so good. So mm-hmm. that's the character suddenly became interesting to me and then the device that they use is great except that there are like holes in it and so that the plot idea is great but then there are little bits where I go well but what about and then it kind of doesn't work quite as successfully Brian what about you any um, any thoughts on this Moriarty arc <laughs> I, 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 I thought it was great that they, they tried to revisit it and because you know a lot of shows like the like especially in those days didn't always pick up things that they you know like that from an earlier season because they were afraid of, you know, viewers not remembering. Is that that was four seasons prior? It, yeah, it was a long time. It was there very was, early uh, in season two. It's like the fourth yes, or fifth uh, episode believe, in season two. Believed to have been an issue, a dispute with the Arthur Conan Doyle estate. Right. Which, if you read the notes, I mean, it's like Jerry Taylor was like, is that right? And she went and investigated. Uh, this is one of the EPs of Next Generation and found out that the Arthur Conan Doyle's estate issue was with young Sherlock Holmes. Right. Um, okay. And so they were able to, for a decent, you know, they were able to license the character essentially to reuse here. Um, yeah. My recollection for the first time I watched this, I had not seen Elementary Dear Data when I watched it or when I watched this. And and I came into it late. I came into, into the scene where Picard and... Barkley and Data are on the holodeck meeting Moriarty. So I'm like way lost what's going on. But it, it's still uh, the first time I saw it, I remember it being very interesting or, you know, it's standing out. And having rewatched it now, I was going to hold this thought to the end. I'm like, it's interesting to watch these two back to back because they are very different yeah. in, a lo- in, in several ways. But that constant, I think, is Daniel Davis's performance as Moriarty. Yes. He's so good. So, yeah. He's just so good. I also just want to say the resonance of this episode really has felt the most on Voyager where they really did raise that. I mean, obviously the doctor is the evolution of Moriarty because he's got the mobile emitter and, and he evolves. And then they raised the issue many, many times on that series about holographic rights, which, you know, you can dismiss in one way, but not in another. And I just always appreciated that they raised the question and didn't necessarily have the answer. Right. Yes, I agree. Because Picard definitely seems mortified when he finds out that essentially Moriarty was like distressed and was aware of where he was. Yeah, no one had noticed the passage of time. He had, he has, and they, they deleted a scene where when Barkley first, you know, when stumbles upon Moriarty, where when he, mm-hmm. when he tells him, you know, I need to shut you down, I gotta go talk to Captain Picard, and in the original episode, he just disappears, you know, he pulls the Barkley pulls the the chip out of the unit and he disappears. They, there was originally an an extra bit in there where you see him in pain as he's being taken away. Oh, you okay. actually see Daniel, no, right. <laughs> yeah, you actually see Moriarty like show him like visibly be pained 
as he's disappearing. I think that we know why they cut that. We don't want to imply that our heroes are causing pain right. on people. Right. Um, that You know what? We should probably talk about Barkley just a tiny, tiny bit because this is the first time on our show, Trek, Mary Kill, that he's coming up. Uh, a, an interesting recurring character played by Dwight Schultz, which the A-team, but I, I would say that <laughs> I was only aware of the A-team because of reruns, and that's because it was in the same orbit as Knight Rider, which oh, yeah. is my childhood show. Oh, yeah. uh, but, you know, Dwight Schultz as Barkley, not the only neurotic character in, in The Next Generation or even the original series, uh, but neurotic being a go-to trait for characters not like our main cast seems like a, it was a pretty solid way to switch things up. Um, Barkley episodes, maybe there'll be a ranking of those one day, but uh, this it was fun to have him, and I like that the writers enjoyed that they got to put him in. Um, it, what it's not like the best Barkley episode, like he he's he has the the punchline of the episode, which is fantastic, uh, and he's good through and he's good throughout because he's a decent actor. But feelings on Barkley? I liked him in this episode. I, I thought the scenes with he and Moriarty were the strongest scene character interactions in the whole episode. Like I. I felt like that stuff really worked well. Because uh, Barkley's like... kind of the outside observer in this episode because he doesn't know what happened previously. Well, he's the vehicle to deliver all the exposition. And he it's is. Beautiful. Yes, he is. He is. <laughs> yeah, he, he delivers it so well. He's just uh, very solid in all of his little turns, the way he uh, says the very direct, very straightforward lines. Uh, it definitely gives it some flavor. I have to say, I don't always like Barkley. And Agreed. so this was, to me, the right amount of Barkley in an episode yes. and the right use of him. So yeah. I thought this was a great episode for him. There somewhere I just yeah. want him to go away. And then the one thing I really find, the thing that reminds me of those episodes is whenever uh, Jordy keeps calling him Reg too many times in a row. Yeah. And that, for some reason bugs me and i i just feel like it's because initially they didn't like him and they made fun of him and then they went over the top as like everybody loves him and he's so popular now you know on voyager he was i thought terrible um so (laughs) reg hey reg hey reg hey reg i don't like but i thought all of his stuff that he did and this was great and his performance was excellent i I agree though a little a little bit of reg goes a long way yes Yeah, I think the quirk of saying people's names and titles, that would have been a fun thing to be a Paramount executive back in the day and just be like, let's see what happens if you can write a scene without a character saying another character's name. (laughs) (laughs) Any other memory alpha-like trivia bits or anything that you know about the episode? That was great about the the pain that he was caused, uh, that they cut that. Yeah, that's on the, the, if you have the Blu-ray of it, it's in in there. Oh, cool. you You can watch it. It's unfinished. It's it unfinished because they, they didn't complete the. They just they cut it out before they even finished the effect. But you can actually watch it. Um, I have one other fact, which is that they did want to bring him back in the seventh season, um, of Next Generation, realizing he'd been duped, and Michael Pillar sort of felt that it was such a perfect ending that it was ridiculous to try and go back and mess with it. Yeah, yeah, great. Great point. And also, really, if it was to follow the motif of season seven, it would have been Moriarty's son on the holodeck seeking revenge. So 
sorry, my joke there is that in season seven, it's everyone's brother or you know yeah. relative or dead si- secret sister. Yeah. Uh, is, has is there a conversation to be had at some point about the quality of the next generation after season five? Oh yeah. Or maybe the show went on for a couple of oh, years yeah. too long. We, uh, we, so. <laughs> yeah, we have we have had a conversation about that on the show pod about how yeah. season seven is actually a very weak season of the show and that season two is arguably better than seven. Oh, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the fact is all good things is, is just like a, a bright shining yep. supernova. It saves it. Yep. And, uh, yeah. yep, exactly. <laughs> yes. All right. And so I guess I mentioned this before you hold the two episodes back to back and right before we get into the grades, I just want to mention this. Um, to me, the episode really slows down once he leaves the holodeck. It's kind of a weird episode in that it has a really interesting idea and it's executed well, uh, but it's also dramatically not as exciting as um, as Elementary Dear Data. And even that one had Dr. Pulaski, but <laughs> but it had a lot of the- theatricality to it. I think the way that it's shot, the differences and all that, yeah. the, the lack of, of an interesting score, the fact maybe you can either of you can explain to me why the decision was made. Like let's make the music less interesting was a very bizarre choice. And at least in Berman, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so bizarre in the, the difference between the two, the, the styles. I mean, there's some, there's definitely some positives, but it's very static. The shots selection. I mean, that's the difference between Rob Bowman directing and Alexander singer. No offense. Two episodes. Uh, You got to make your days. Yeah. There's no difference. Um, The difference between the two is remarkable when you watch them back to back. Yeah, so there's just like an energy, and and I think there's kind of a, I think there's a missed opportunity with the Countess Regina character. Um, again, Stephanie Beecham, I only knew from a short-lived sitcom called Sister Kate. So I knew her from <laughs> that's a, I knew her from the Colbys. Oh, okay. Was a, what was that a spinoff, was a spin-off of, of a, Dynasty? She was Charlton Heston. Oh, I knew she it. was Charlton Heston's wife. Wow. Charleston, Charlton Heston did a TV he show. Did. So did Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> she was on it too. I mean, it was like. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was the 80s, man. <laughs> Wild times. Uh, but I, I think the fact that Moriarty labels her as a virtuous, pure person who would never do anything wrong, it really, if you got to her being a, around faster and she has her own desires and wants to create the drama in the episode to drive it, sort of like how he did in Elementary Dear Data, that would have been a way more interesting idea. But we, we kind of get bogged down in the mental the plot version of like, this is a cool concept that we just want to make sure it's clear that it's cool. Yeah. And um, yeah. I think the episode kind of falls down for that a little bit, but I'm excited to talk about the grades here. So let's get started. Great scenes. Uh, let's have Brian go first. I mean, I think that the most memorable scene is obviously when he steps out into what, what we think is the corridor and he starts, yeah. he start you know, he quotes the Latin, expression i think therefore i am um that is the most memorable bit in the, in the episode that and the moment when data realizes when he's in engineering with geordie that something is very wrong like, you know what makes that scene even more fun is that lavar burton decides that somewhere i guess that as soon as they discovered that it was a trick he would lose his personality so yeah. <laughs> he suddenly That's just true. becomes very, like he's standing passive. as close to them as he was when they were all having a conversation. Right. They didn't, they don't really step away. And then he just, his face becomes very blank and he's afraid to say anything. Yeah, he's very passive. He becomes an NPC. Yeah. yeah. He is, yeah. yeah he's fulfilled his function. So he's got nothing yep. else to do. 
Yeah. And then Picard says, would you excuse us for a minute? And I laughed bo- like both times on this <laughs> yeah. rewatch. And he just turns and leaves. <laughs> and he just slowly walks off. And it's off. engineering. And like, Where's and he he's, going? And yeah. he's the chief engineer. It's all, why didn't they leave? It's all very strange. <laughs> yeah. So those, those are the two scenes in it that, that stand out to me. Well, let's talk a little bit about that first scene. I, I think that's probably the best scene. I, I, at least for me, it might have been. But I love when he tosses the book out of the holodeck to prove that things can't leave the holodeck. Um, it's just like a great, especially if you're like a, a kid watching it, it's like a clear example of what's going on. Did you also catch that Patrick Stewart takes a minute to consider which book to grab? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like half a beat. He looks at one and then he looks at another and he grabs that and I, or grabs the second one. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> It could. It was probably nothing. I just had. I watched it enough on a giant TV. I noticed it. So, um, but also, it, it's just a good. Daniel Davis is so good. I I think if you listen to this podcast before, you've noticed I'll I'll be really annoying and notice when actors are looking down for their marks. And Barkley or uh, Dwight Schultz does it twice. Uh, he definitely does it a big time when he steps into that room to call for Moriarty. And that's fine. He's got to be in a spot for the VFX. It's not an issue. But Daniel Davis, his blocking for that scene, he has to like basically walk all the way around it. Mm-hmm. And he is perfect. He is perfect in all of his scenes. And they're doing camera moves off of when he's hitting certain marks. And you wouldn't know it. It's just so natural and effortless. Um, he's just basically like a breath of fresh air walking through the show yep. from the moment he appears starting in that scene. Yeah, he's excellent. Yeah. He's excellent. And you know what's funny about him? He's not British. I always thought he was. No. Me too. He lives there. He lives there, though. He's living in in England, I believe. Is he? I think so, because they had to. I think he is. I wonder if he's picked up the accent. I mean, I used to think because of where Gillian Anderson was born, Scully from the X Files. For anyone who doesn't know, um, that she was that she was American, and then basically she's adopted the accent over time. But she spent a lot of time. She grew up there, basically. But I still am like, they can't claim her. She's ours. But <laughs> now I wonder if Daniel Davis moving there, if if he's just like, it, it's so effortless. It sounds good enough. Yeah. But I, I've never seen Hunt for Red October, but I guess he's got his twang. He does. Going in that but movie. Like, it's weird. Yeah. He's in Hunt for Red October. He's he's one of the senior officers on the aircraft carrier Enterprise. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Well, if it's a Paramount picture and there's like military craft, especially if there's an aircraft carrier, that's always the Enterprise. And if it's a Paramount, movie. that's just good business. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, why not? Good. You know, um, but he has a, that. He's using the same, not using the same Moriarty accent, but it sounds like he sounds like someone who is British who's trying to do an American accent and not entirely succeeding. If you mm. watch the movie, you'll see what I mean. It's a, it's kind of a weird accent. He doesn't sound American. He sounds like a British person who's failing to do an American accent, which is wild considering he's from Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe his southern drawl is so thick that he it's like it's a binary. He's like I can be subtle British or yeah. <laughs> I can be or I can be this, I've, but I can't be in between. I have never <laughs> seen he used to go to conventions. I don't think he's been to one in a while, but I and I wonder if anybody who's seen him could tell us like what he sounds like when he's just chewing the fat with people, you know, just in that one clip from the trailer, he looks great. He's like 75, 77. Yeah, he he's looks good. great. I am very curious and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves and tell me if we are, but I'm very curious as to how they are retrieving him. We can talk about it at any point because it's, it is the open question. I mean, we'll know soon enough, but 
Um, yeah, that that's why I mentioned the chain of custody bit. Yeah. It's like, okay, so maybe Barkley didn't just take care of it. It wasn't in his quarters, but the Enterprise D crash landed. So that was potentially recovered. Yes, that's what I would and have to then, think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, which we, I think what, in, in like canon or memory beta type stuff, or no, even in uh, season two of Picard, right? They're like the Enterprise saucer section was retrieved is maybe in a museum or something. Yeah, it's what intact. happened with it then? Yeah, it's intact. So it happened there. But it's like, did it go with them to the Enterprise E? Did it become Starfleet property? Did Barkley keep it? Did Barkley keep it? Right. I suspect that, that, see, I suspect they're gonna say that they reloaded it back into the Enterprise D's memory core, and that's how they're gonna retrieve it. That's how we know they were tired at the end of Voyager because you have Barkley there. It would have been a logical bring him back there. So, have a have a Sherlock Holmes mystery on Earth. Yeah. Meanwhile, Voyager's waiting for like a report from Barkley. <laughs> and he and Troy are stuck in a sim. Anyway, um, also, one other thing I, we didn't mention about the scene. Again, first time we're talking about on Trek, Mary Kill. Picard's relaxed fit coat in the gray sweater. Yes. <laughs> With uh, maybe not the best material, it doesn't look like a totally comfortable uh, coat, but I love the idea of like the captain should look a little casual. It, it was fun. I, I don't know what the reasoning behind it was, but it's basically like we're in season six. We need to change up something yeah. somewhere and I pref- to make I, it look I, I definitely prefer the later season uniforms. Like you look at the season two uniforms and they're still wearing those very like skin tight outfits. I just yeah. I don't think those are flattering yeah. on anybody, those things. So like when they loosened everything up a little bit, it just made everybody look better. I also just like variations in general. Yes. Like Kirk's, Kirk's wraparound and Picard gets a jacket and right. Janeway t- has like a turtleneck on underneath yep. or something yep. or a tank top. Like it's all very interesting. I Also, though, it was funny that he's in his basically relaxed fit and he's talking to this entity about desperately wanting to be alive. <laughs> There's something a little like he's the most casual he could be right now. Laurie, does there something you want to mention about that scene or do you have any other great scenes? I have some other great scenes. Let's hear it. Um, I loved Barkley meeting the countess because his reactions yeah. to her are so funny <laughs> yeah. and her character <laughs> is revealed like, Instantly, I would say, like, that's the fastest. We just totally got who this person was immediately. Yep. Um, and when she's talking to him about her, I, I want to save some of it for great lines. But just his facial reaction to everything that she says is so great. I had Picard shows Moriarty 10 forward, explains the Enterprise, explains that the Enterprise is a starship. Um, but also things like criminal behavior is still frowned upon <laughs> in the 24th century. Yeah. And uh, basically, it sets up Moriarty making his plea that okay, I'm I'm free, thank you. I but I'm also alone, and I'd like to bring the love of my life out with me. And Picard, I'm not totally in on on Patrick Stewart's performance that scene. It was also a weird choice to have him just sitting the whole time. But it was it just basically uh, it was still a nice scene, I think, and it kind of kept up the energy of this huge reveal because now he wants something on top of it. So you're at least driving the plot in some way. And again, another great performance from Daniel Davis. He's very compelling. Uh, but I, I have to ask you both. Are the, are the moral impl- and ethical implications of letting another holographic figure walk off the holodeck overwhelming? This is Picard's idea. I think, the moral and ethical. Yeah. I think it it is actually. Because now you have a parade of creating people. Okay. That then become real. So that does have big moral and ethical yeah, implications. Yeah. 
All right, both of you. And, and Picard right. and Picard not really knowing, they still don't really completely understand the origins of Moriarty, beyond the fact that Geordi simply, you know, said the magic words and, and the Enterprise computer created that character, but they still don't understand how the ship did that. And here they are creating another one without really understanding the ethical implications of it. So then the second question, which Moriarty asks, is it morally and ethically acceptable to deny the woman he loves to put their conscience at ease? <laughs> well, if if it's just to put their conscience at ease, that's a separate thing. I just think it's more than that. Yeah. Yeah, I think the whole time there is, a, if from Moriarty's perspective, it was very easy for me to see that the to get the feeling that he's being BSed. Yes. <laughs> like, I, because Picard was basically like, oh, I feel really bad, but we don't know what happened. And uh, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do about it. And then the other part is like, uh, it seems like a big deal to create another one of you. I, we're just not going to do anything. It, that seemed very loud and clear as well. Well, especially because um, at the beginning, Picard is like, oh, we gave the problem to the Federation's finest minds. And right. they're like, how'd that go? <laughs> And he's yeah, no clue. Hey, couldn't come <laughs> yeah. up with anything, and nobody's thought about it in a while. It's yeah. basically we're, the uh, <laughs> yeah, we're uh, far away from base. It'll take a while to get a response. <laughs> All right, let's move on to best Trek tropes, which I think is a tricky grading this time around. But Lori, please, do you have a best Trek trope here? I have a couple of them. I mean, obviously, holodeck gone awry. Although there's a yes. twist. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it hasn't. It's not quite that the holodeck went awry on its own, but holodeck adventure misadventure is a great trek trope and they're still doing yes. it on the current shows fantastic yeah <laughs> um i would also say um a hologram demanding personhood which became a big like i said big thing on voyager yep um and any mention of the heisenberg compensators i consider to be an excellent <laughs> trek trope <laughs> <laughs> which modern audiences know to be uh jesse instead <laughs> uh sorry that was a breaking bad joke sorry well flat so... <laughs> right, brian what about you both things laurie said and also the way they resort to techno babble to get themselves out of these little things like when they this is perfect wow i can't believe you brought that up you put that as a best trek trope that's that's great i also thought that if if you have a nerd in there in that room going, well, wait a minute, it's not as difficult as they say it is. It may not work, but we've seen there. Basically, the problem is you can't lock on to something in the holodeck because it's not it real exist, matter. Right. It's, it's, right. So we'll do these pattern enhancers to create it. But the thing is, is that you've also got the replicator. And we've seen that the transporter can accept right. basically pre-programmed data from unnatural selection. Remember Dr. Pulaski? get super old they find her her old dna pattern the deadly years put it in the machine yes exactly um and and so there's basically already a, a theoretical framework based on just star trek's own techno babble for how you could actually just tell the transporter look here's this area you're gonna beam it and it's gonna have this pattern and it would just make it happen right. um so, but the, I don't know. It's not like, the, it's not like I thought that was a flaw. I'm just saying like, wait a minute. <laughs> if we're pulling from stuff that's come before, here's other stuff. Anyway, the only thing I was going to say about the, the holodeck episode mishap already happening, Fistful of Datas, which I think explains why Brent Spiner can't really, doesn't have much to do in this episode. Like Data stops being Sherlock Holmes and then that's it. You know what I mean? Like we, we never revisit the, the Holmesian part of it. 
you know, it would have been interesting that once data figured out that this was a, you know, once the transporter from the test comes back with an empty result and he realizes what's going on, if after Picard mentions, enters the command codes, that data just rushes in and goes, wait, Captain, don't speak to the computer. (laughs) (laughs) And then it would have been too late, but it would have, it would have had that flourish, that energy. Um, And maybe it's because they just did that with fistful of data's. Or maybe it's just because this particular writing staff didn't have that juge to it, essentially. <laughs> didn't have, uh, you know, it is a bunch of like what would be now Reddit bros writing the show at the time. So you have like, like really interesting writers, but also like kind of limited life experience type of guys. Ron Moore, Ren Ashvaria, and Brandon Braga. They're all very young yeah. when they were writing the show. And it turned out really well, but in a lot of ways. But it is a situation where it's like, uh, some of these ideas they could have maybe taken a step further, which to your point about season two, for all the criticism that gets for how it looks and maybe some of the performances, there are a lot of interesting ideas and dramatically interesting scenes in that season. Oh yeah. Even something like pen pals when they're all sitting around debating, should we help the data's friend, (laughs) this pen pal on this planet? Like that's an interesting actual debate that's going to help it's kind of weird that scenes basically never really repeated in any meaningful way throughout the show. And yet we all think of something like that whenever we think of the next generation, uh, they all sit around and talk about it. A lot of the building blocks of what, what the rest of that show became were in season two. Yeah. yeah. I mean, interesting what you're saying about data deducing. I mean, he does say he figured it out through deduction. And as I was rewatching, I was thinking, you know, there was an opportunity for him to do a very Holmesian description near the end of their plan yes and what they did and then i but then i sort of wrestled with the fact that i loved the ending so much that it would have been an ending and then another ending and this was the better more satisfying choice so maybe they did evaluate that and decide yeah that would be great but this is better yeah it just it's weird how it kind of peters out in a lot of ways the episode uh, even though you have that sort of really cool shot of them flying away in the shuttle and and all that, and the the great punchline with Bun- with Barkley at the end, yeah. But, all right, worst Trek tropes. This was a little tricky for me, so I'd be interested to hear Brian if you had any. Other Brian, if you had. Any. <laughs> I don't. I mean, you could say that the techno babble functions as good and bad in this episode because it's a constant mm-hmm. bugaboo throughout TNG. Um, I don't really have a particularly bad trope here. I don't think there's anything in this episode that makes you roll your eyes and be like, oh, come on again. I would agree. Lori, do you have, do you agree or do you have a no, rebuttal? I have, <laughs> I have two. Oh, okay. right, let's hear it. All right. So one is when they're about to be pulled, the whole ship is in danger for some phenomenon or other thing. And it's just is supposed to be there to add urgency to the story, but doesn't really end up creating a lot of stakes. Yeah, that's the side. That yeah. is the soft one I had. I had two soft ones. I had the Enterprise being in danger as your schmuck bait, essentially. Like as an afterthought. Then, <laughs> yes. Which is why I think this episode has some a missed opportunity by having sticking to that formula because they could have spent more time doing something else, yeah. something yeah. more interesting. Um, but then the other part, we kind of get a soft denial of Worf, but they do a good job of Moriarty reasoning like, hey, if you hurt me, you're not going to get what you need, the codes. Uh, you know, Worf pulls his phaser as soon as he takes over the fake Enterprise bridge. Um, 
So that, that was the other one. And then there was just like an error. It's not a worse trope, but I didn't know where else to put it. it. I think it's because we can see it clearly in HD. But when Data looks at the transporter log, it clearly says transport log 721. And Data says, computer, what is this? And computer, the computer says, it's log 759. <laughs> and, then, and then Data says, that is the correct log, but it's not, the, there's no data. And it's like, no, it's not the correct log. It's right there. So anyway, okay. the, I guess the trope there is making stuff for 480, never thinking. <laughs> so, yeah, that they were going yeah. yeah, yeah. to be able of, to read it. I have one yeah. other, but it applies only to Next Generation because it's the only one where it would matter. Yes. Nobody ever mentions Pulaski again after season two. <laughs> yeah, they, that's they, right. They, and they, do their, the they do their best not to do it in this episode. Like, like he mentions the hostage, but he's yeah. they say we're going to take it to the doctor, <laughs> like all this stuff. And she's the one that he was like, I hope to see you again, madam, at the end of the previous episode he'd Poor been Kate. in. They'd had a nice little relationship. And then everybody just acts as if she was never there. Yeah. Boo. That's true. I didn't pick up on. I didn't pick up on the good. Like, let's take you to see the doctor. He could have been like, "How is the good doctor?" Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, there is none of that. Yes. All right. Most of its time quality. I think the biggest one is that I feel like if this were done today versus the early nineties, I the fact that Moriarty was a villain wouldn't be let go so easily like he says no i'm good now and i'm not like that guy and they all kind of accept that and i think we the audience accept that and i feel like today that evilness they would not be able to resist bringing back the villainous side of him the dark side uh, I, I think it was to me I, I i read into that more that he that they weren't just believing him or at least the audience is not supposed to necessarily believe that completely when he tells picard about you know and this is one of the quotes that that stood out for me in, in the episode since we we're going to be talking about quotes like the the program fashioned her for me to love but i must admit i would have done so anyway she's remarkable like they're trying to give you an emotional bottom to the character so that he's more than just this like cartoon one-dimensional villain like that it's he's got more going on here he wants to fight for his survival and he wants to have some sort of connection connection and, and life of his own with someone who he feels he's destined to be with so like i i don't feel like he's necessarily we're necessarily supposed to buy that he's not being bad just because he says so i think he they kind of show that his motivations are maybe a little more pure i think i just think I, in today's I, modern the way that we look at things now is that would never they would have made him evil yeah yeah, I think there would have been some idea of like, well, that's his programming, that's his nature. And then it'd be some argument of, can we, you know, exceed our, our programming and who we are? Right. That that might have been some tie. Uh, this is, <laughs> that's a good one. Brian, do you have one? I like that one, Laurie. Very Not much. really. That, 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 well, Laurie, that's a good point that Laurie brought up. I, they probably, every, everything is so binary now in, in our world. That, and dark. Yeah, and dark. And dark, yeah, the darkness. Yeah, they probably yeah. would have had him um, kill one of the Enterprise crew members or something. You know, they would. Yeah, <laughs> I should have probably maybe put this in work, worst Trek trope for negative TNG tropes. Um, but there is like a bad scene in here that's just in here because I don't know how they let the scene come in. It's very perfunctory most of its time because this is very procedural. But it's the scene in the observation lounge, the fake observation lounge, where they're having the conference. 
and it's Troy and Barkley mm-hmm. and Crusher and Data. And basically he's like, Picard says, should we do what he asks? And they all say no, which is boring, right? They all just agree with him and they all give the reasons for saying no. And then the scene's over. And I thought that's weird that that's the scene, especially since this is a, ostensibly a program or we find out later it's a program um, that Moriarty would have programmed. And yet not one person like Crusher says, although it's romantic, you know, we can't we can't go give into this. But it's weird that not one of them says, well, what's the harm in trying or anything like that? Yeah. It's like there's no no dramatic conflict. It's a very strange, even a slight tension at all yeah. for Picard to consider. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is I have an actual of its time. The tw- in the challenge in recreating the 221B Baker Street study set from Memory Alpha was to be faithful to both the descriptions in the original stories as well as the scenes in Elementary Dear Data. One notable noticeable difference from the previous episode was the wallpaper, which has been discontinued in the preceding four years. So, literally, the wallpaper was of its time. <laughs> <laughs> Very That's specifically it. of its time. Very yeah. specific. Yep. The line must be drawn yeah. here. Great lines. Yes. <laughs> Lori, please. There are so many. I mean, I'll don't g- take them all. I please. will try to narrow Give it down. Give Brian some. I will try to narrow it <laughs> down. I already mentioned one, but I, which I which, will read again. Which was also on my list. Okay. Um, but, well, so one of my favorites was the Countess saying, I got to wear trousers the whole time. <laughs> it was hard to go back to a corset, I can tell you. And then Barkley goes, oh, I'm yes, I'm sure it was with this big grin on his face. So that's one of my big ones. I loved real Jordy going, just because our transporter's real doesn't mean it's going to work. <laughs> um, of course, Picard's closing line right before Barclays. He says, our reality may be very much like theirs. Yeah. All this might just be an elaborate simulation running inside a little device sitting on someone's table. So, And of course, it was an elaborate simulation running inside a little device sitting on all of our tables yeah. as we were watching it. Way to unnerve 11-year-old Brian. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved some of Moriarty's. I loved him saying brief, terrifying periods of consciousness disembodied without substance. Like, that's pretty nightmare-inducing. Yes, well. it is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, those weren't all of mine, but I'll shut up now. <laughs> well, you can jump back in, but yeah, skip Brian the floor for a minute. Well, like I said... But Lori, jump in as soon as you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it was that when he's discussing what the Countess means to him, the program fashioned her for me to love but I must admit I would have done so anyway. She is remarkable. My life has not been the same since I met her. I don't simply love her, Captain. I adore her. Like I said, that gives the all of a sudden that character just becomes very human, and you, I found more empathy with him. He was no longer just this this cardboard villain cut out of you know home old Holmes stories. Like he had more of an emotional bottom to him than he would have had otherwise. I mean, I I've read a few home stories over the years. I can't say I've read a lot of them, but I don't remember him. Have I don't remember Moriarty having much of a rich personal life of any kind. He was just kind of a nemesis for Holmes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think that was his. So to see role. this, that gave me a feeling of empathy for him. As much as as much trouble as he was causing, he his motivations were at least somewhat genuine. Yeah, it establishes his reason for all of his actions, too. Yeah. So, 
we understand him in two levels, emotionally and, and plot-wise. Right. And one of the other things I love, is I mentioned this earlier, is when he steps out of the holodeck. And, yes. And he starts speaking Latin. Now, and not, not every actor could start quoting Latin and make it He does work. it so effortlessly. He does it so effortlessly. And I'm not going to repeat the... It's what is I I'm 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 gonna be Cogito ergo sum. Is that exactly how you say cogito? I th- I okay. think I okay. think so. Anyway, I think therefore I am. You know that's a great line, and it kind of sums up everything about the Moriarty character that we've known about. Yes. Him. And then there's one other bit that I just found amusing right after he walks out of the holodeck and they call security, and he goes, "Oh, policeman! I'd recognize yeah. them in any century." <laughs> yes. Yes, Master Criminal Moriarty yeah, is definitely yeah. a believer in ACAB. Yes, yep. yes, absolutely. So th- those are my favorite bits as far as dialogue goes. Oh, and I got a random question by, for you guys. Yes. Did anybody find it silly that Jordy builds this elaborate model and he brings it down to engineering where it could get easily knocked over and broken? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I yes. Mean, yes. Yes. That's from Elementary Dare Data, right? Yes, yes. Yes. And I was like, why is it there? Like, how long did it take him to build there when he's supposed to be working? Yeah. I, I just thought that was so weird. <laughs> he keeps it underneath that console, <laughs> and then he just brought it out and put yeah, it I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, this. that was from Elementary Dude Day. So I watched it back to back. So I was just like, I, I had to ask about that. I was like sitting there going, why would he have that thing in engineering with him? Yeah, that well, makes my, agreed. <laughs> my speculation was that's Picard material that they just shunted over to Jordy. Yeah, maybe. Uh, because... Because it doesn't sound like Jordy. It's just it's it is Jordy because LeVar Burton's so great as Jordy LaForge. Right. But uh, it was a very bizarre moment. Anyway, sorry for the digression there. It's just it's... <laughs> we encourage digressions okay. on Trek Mary Kill okay. because yeah, why not? Uh, Lori, I'm, I'll let you jump back in here. <laughs> I just had one more, which I loved when yes. he said when Moriarty said, "My past is nothing but a fiction. The scribblings of an Englishman dead now for four centuries." Yeah, and then that we really do just depart from that. This is a storybook character, right? From from that moment on, um, I had a deadline has a wonderful way of oh, concentrating the mind. Yeah. It's a great one. That's a good one. And That's so true. I have uh, half of a line. I love that when he comes in to that Countess Regina scene with Barkley, that he calls him Lieutenant. I didn't no. even notice that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't either. Did. I made sure to rewind that. <laughs> and then uh and then Barkley's last line, computer and program. Yeah. Uh, yep. I think I think that's that's great. It's an all timer. And maybe maybe inspired the Matrix in some way. So. Yeah. <laughs> Alright. Alright. So now we'll move on to the Anton Caridian Award for Best Performance, which for this one, maybe we need to just say the Professor James Moriarty Award for Best Performance yeah. only because I can't imagine. I don't want to. I'm stepping on it, but Brian, please. No, Dan Davis is a rock nominee? star. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it should be. And Stephanie Beecham does a great job, too. Yes. They they inhabit those characters completely. Instantly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They had really strong guest stars. And obviously, and, you know, Dwight Schultz is was always great in that role. Whether we, you liked him or not, he inhabited that role so believably. Well, what I love about him in this one is he's always making gestures that are very interesting in the background that are very in character. So the way he watches them kiss yep. his face, when anything's happening, his, he's always doing something a bit jittery with his hands. Yep. Mm-hmm. When, when they beam the chair away and she says, Bravo. And he's like, so excited. Yep. So I, I think he was fantastic in this one. Also, he's very sharing or generous. He's not 
it's not overwhelming what other people are doing. You know, Barkley could very easily fall into his ticks being the point. And I think he's written that way in later appearances, but here it doesn't, it doesn't overshadow. He gives the space for them to do that. No, that's a good point. But Daniel Davis is so good. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Stephanie Beecham really does a fantastic job, but I'm so bummed that I feel like that character could have just done more. Um, and a lot of, they could have done more with the character and she does a great job. So, okay. We're in agreement there. It's pretty easy. He was in our elementary dear data, the very obvious choice as well. Um, the Shatner, this is again, not bad acting, just going for it. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I, Lori, I have you here as first, but do do you have anybody? Yes, you're, you're I, very generous. Okay, so <laughs> I do. I always have at least two things. Um, <laughs> one is a uh, Brent Spiner as Holmes, uh-huh. as Data, as yep. Holmes. Oh, you don't like that no, portrayal? No, okay, I did good. like it. I did like it. Oh, like okay. I thought but he's going for it. He's really goes for it. Like I feel like he'd eat the wallpaper if he, you know, the wrong wallpaper. <laughs> Brent, if he is, could. Brent is entirely capable of chewing scenery with the best of them. Yes. But then he switches so, back into data so beautifully. Data, yes. Yeah. Is he doing a basil rathbone version of it? It seems like it like, doesn't. That the yeah. inspiration? It, yeah. Yes. It, I, I assume, yeah. He's doing like an imitation of an imitation. It's just so there's yes. that. And then the guy in that first scene with him, who's like, good lord, or whatever, <laughs> with the choking yeah. on the cigar. And his mustache gets a little bonus point also for really oh, yeah. going for it. <laughs> Yes, good hair work in this episode yes. with the yes. eggs and every and beards. Yes, I liked him. I, see, I wanted to. I thought about putting him here, but I was also like, he does such a good job with his uh, facial expressions and and gestures. And again, he's just sitting. You know, it's like he's not having a lot of space to move that actor. But yeah, he definitely was going for. He was definitely playing that cartoonish yes character. Yeah. All right, those are great, Brent. Yeah, I, Brent, absolutely, Brent. All right, I have. I have freaks <laughs> because he's, he's shouting a lot of his he lines does shout a lot and of then lines. he's, he's <laughs> do, and he's, and he's glaring, he's glaring and shouting. That's basically the performance in this episode. Uh, but I have an honorable mention, the security guard poking at the force field around the hall. <laughs> I had him as the guy. I had the two guys on Wharf security team as the ones who absolutely did not go for it. Because you have this one guy who's poking it and looks surprised every time, even though obviously when he did it, there was nothing. And then the other guy, if you notice, is just sort of twirling a tool around and looking up at Worf every once in a while. All right. So that's a great point. But I was so focused on the guy poking because (laughs) you could see on his face that he was thinking about what he had to do. So he's like, oh, Hmm, what if I tried over here? Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I was reacting to. But you're also right that it could potentially be not going for it. So. <laughs> yeah, I felt like it really wasn't. <laughs> like those two people who are following Jordy around at the beginning, taking notes, they seem very absorbed in their fake tasks. But the security people just really didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> That's because it seems like, you know, a lot of jabronis were on the security staff. And then, you know, Jordy's Jordy's department was a lot better. You know, it's the enterprise. You know, it's not right. going to be a fall down engineering staff. But then this gets into our thought experiment uh, section. And that is, what part of this are they teaching at Starfleet Academy, Brian? I'm guessing there's a whole section in their ethics of... of... I wouldn't even know what section to call this, but it has a lot to do with 
the creation of artificial life and how one goes about um, dealing with it. <laughs> I mean, I don't like I, they even in both episodes, they don't really ever kind of come up with an answer. They kind of just put a bandaid on it and hope for the best. Right. Um, yeah. I would think that, that the, the mere creation of this character and the ensuing creation of a second character would definitely be a topic in ethics classes at Starfleet Academy for decades to come. Um, and it is, according to Voyager. Ah. They mention, okay. they mention that they are familiar with those events. So the reason why I like this question is because I, I think I was inspired by the fact that a lot of stuff does come back in Voyager. Voyager is sort of like, okay, here's Star Trek up to this point. Because that they really are taking it into the Delta Quadrant, so that's good. I I know there are stray references to these to past events here, uh, Lori. So th- is that yours as well? Same same deal. Well, I had some other ones that they should do. Yeah, I have a couple too, or I have one too. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I do think if there's a, they should teach at the academy that if there's a protected file, you should ask about it before you open it. <laughs> that would be useful. And I also think if you have like Barkley in this one appears to be a holodeck technician, like he's the guy they call. And I would think that he, they would have better training for them to be well-versed in every anomaly, every mishap and every malfunction. I, that was such a weird beat. I know they just need to get into the story, but they're, were they running a test on the hall on the holodeck? Or because they were in the costume, their their homes and Watson costume, and so they're doing it, and then there's a glitch, and so they call Barkley, who, who I don't know, who rushes is kind over. of important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. he rushes. Breathless. They're like, whoa, Reg, like as if he's t- he arrived too quickly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and it's just basically, you have, I guess it is. You have senior officers saying, "Excuse me, help. There's something wrong with my room," <laughs> and he has to. Uh, 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 respond to it but it was just such a weird thing of like wait what's going on here is this how we're getting into the story all right so you would think barkley is the one who's always on the holodeck right or yeah. he has the addiction wait he has the addiction why is he working on the holodecks at all so i assume <laughs> he's now an expert it's therapeutic yeah yeah okay he's an all right expert now <laughs> i mean um, which, do you have another one Lori? well it also i do think that they should be teaching maybe some holodeck not quite etiquette, but some guidelines. Like, you know what? After an hour, like a timer goes off or something <laughs> in case you're, you know, they've had enough things happen at this point that it's time to start on the tech side, having some solutions to how to deal with them. Like, a, right. you know, a fail safe plan for the, when the holodeck gets under someone else's control. It's best not to think too much about the ethical and moral implications <laughs> of the holodeck at all. <laughs> My main thing was when you're studying the formation of a star, your ship should not be anywhere close to being in danger. <laughs> right. That's right. that's probes and shuttles. You probably right. have other special right. equipment. And you're not risking a thousand people to get close. Yeah, and and like they're they're, they're damn close at the end when it goes when it goes off, yeah. and like the corona washes over the Enterprise. I'm like, <laughs> right. It's like uh, shields, please. Yes. <laughs> Wait, Dr. Crusher's so going to be very busy for the next few hours. And, that's right. And that's a lesson they just never learn from one show to the next. How would the predecessor show or Captain resolve the conflict? So we're dealing with Captain Kirk 
and the Enterprise, um, Laurie. Kind of a no-brainer. I think he would have talked Moriarty into destroying himself. <laughs> right. <laughs> it always comes to that when it comes to computers. <laughs> well, Brian? Yeah, he would have definitely tried to guilt him into realizing that <laughs> he was probably causing a lot of harm. At the very least, needed to uh, cease. Yeah, he would probably try to talk him to death. Yeah, I mean, if, if you go by the straight TOS trope, I tend to think, though, if you remove the trope aspect of it, it would somewhat play out the way it does in this episode, and that Spock would probably catch on to what was happening. Which, would have Shatner have allowed that? Seems like Kirk would have figured. <laughs> I don't know. Spock used to figure plenty uh, of things yeah. out. Yeah. That's true. But then he and McCoy... But there might have been more of a moral discussion, because McCoy would have gotten very yes. upset. McCoy would have gotten very upset and would have been yelling at both of them. Like, questioning you know are we we being ethical about this is this a is this a real life i mean yeah there would have been a lot i think a much more open discussion of the ethical and and not everybody agreeing the way that you were saying other other brian um the way that you were saying that they all just had this conversation where they all just agreed with each other and left there would have been a huge argument yeah there would have been a huge argument mccoy and kirk yeah yep and then scotty would have said something outrageous in the middle of it what do you mean? You know, right? Well, Scotty would have been out outside the holodeck, going, "How? I don't. How do you? Yeah. How does this happen?" <laughs> Scotty would have been the one talking to Moriarty. Gone. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Yeah, getting him yeah. drunk. Yes. Yes, <laughs> Scotty would have gotten him drunk. <laughs> well, I definitely had that. Kirk would have punched Moriarty, but that's what I said in the last in the elementary deal, dear data. But it would have been interesting. How would they have solved this one? I mean, differences. You don't have the holodeck, that kind of thing. I. I really like that McCoy thought though. He would have basically said we've, you know, we, we use this as an amusement park and now one of the uh, employees is coming trying to come home with us kind of right. kind of thinking like and, and we're going to deny them that uh, that kind of McCoy thing. was always good, good at I, being the conscience. Yep. Yeah. That's a good wrapping up point to get us to our, our the grade, the one we're all waiting for. Trek, marry or kill ship in a bottle and Lori, please, if you would I'm going to say Trek. It's a good episode. It's got some good ideas. It's got some great actors. It's clever, but it's got this very calm tone the whole time. It's, it's very even keel. And you know, there are those holes like the biggest, if, if they couldn't control anything, how did they overwrite the program in the holodeck? How did Moriarty figure out how to program a holodeck in about, yeah. I don't know, yeah, an there's hour? There's a lot of things you have to like not think about because otherwise the episode right. doesn't make any sense at all. Right. So you have to do all that, but it's still a good story. Yep. Brian, I agree. I, it, it's Trek. It's yeah. absolutely Trek. And it is the best high concept episode of the show that Brian and Braga did not write. <laughs> oh, what a great... No, that's a great note. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, that's because normally this is this is like right in Braga's wheelhouse, this kind of thing. And he, and he loved and this he, one. He loved it. Yeah, yeah, he loved it. He loved it. Um, yeah, I know. In the, I kind of liked Emergence. Yeah, and I know that the twists and turns had gave the writing staff some fits. I think I read somewhere that Ron Moore said they actually had to like create a chart on a on a whiteboard yes. just so they could keep track of how it was all gone because they were getting confused. Which may have been why they didn't do like a Holmesian denouement at the end too, with Data. That's, is it, that it, that might have been a bit too much and maybe made people's heads spin. But then he could have said, "So we went into the pro. We figured out a subroutine he wouldn't notice and went into the. You know, they needed some kind of 
is there a way to, since we can't change it, can we alter the story? Like that yeah. moment was sort of missing. Yeah. I, I do enjoy the episode. It does skate over some things that probably shouldn't have ethically, but as an entertainment, I enjoyed it. And it's a great companion piece to elementary your data. I agree. I trek as well. I'm, I'm glad we're all in agreement, but that's why I had three of us in case someone was recalcitrant and, uh, had to get pushed in line, but that didn't happen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And the one other thing about this episode that does bug me is that in the final scene, and it's right after Chain of Command, Troy is not in her standard uniform again, which she was at the fake Troy had her standard uniform on. That's right. Yeah, but I the think real were, Troy uh, does not. There are a couple of uniform credit changes, to though. I think that they're deliberately trying to throw people off, I think. Credit to Marina Sirtis, though. Great tan. <laughs> I always like the early in the season when the cast have their tans yeah, and haircuts their tans. from their summer yeah. break. Yep. It was a fun episode to do. It, very interesting watching them back to back or in our case, doing these shows back to back. Lori and Brian, you want people to uh, do you want people to follow you on social media? Sure. No, by all means. I'm Drew 73 on Twitter and possibly yeah. on post soon if I decide to leave Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, I'm flubish um, everywhere. So Twitter, Instagram, trying out post Mastodon Hive, not spending a lot of time there. Really still enjoying Twitter. Sorry. Um, and me too. And if you go to trekmovie.com, there are podcasts all access and the shuttle pod are right there for you. Um, and they're great. Listen to them. Lori, you heard her this whole episode. She sounds great. Brian, sounds great. Have so much insight and uh, really knowledgeable. Just. You guys are pulling stuff out immediately. It's fantastic. I love it. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with an all new episode. If you're so inclined, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're there or on Spotify, five stars, maybe. It's up to you. You can also follow us online on Twitter and Instagram at TrekMaryKPod. And we launched a website, TrekMaryKillPod.com. And that has all of our links and the standings of everything we've graded so far. Uh, we had a tie-in our Star Trek Voyager Caretaker pilot episode, and we have a poll up on the site and on the other social channels to so you can vote and decide if it's a Trek, Mary, or Kill. I'm keeping that open on all those platforms through January. So this episode's dropping at the beginning of January, and so it'll be open through the rest of the month, January 2023, that is. Brian and Lori, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming. Thank you for having me, Brian. Yeah, thank you. I really, really enjoy your podcast. Yes, absolutely. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Until next week, TMK out.